Monitor Monday is recorded before a live online audience. It's morning in America. It's Monitor Monday. For rural hospitals and small town clinics, big city health systems, and healthcare professionals, Monday means Monitor Monday. And Monday means gearing up for another week of audits by the government and health plans. Here now with the latest regulatory and audit news is the publisher of Rack Monitor and the host of Monitor Monday, Chuck Buck. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to Monitor Monday. This is our special 60-minute town hall edition of Monitor Monday, and this morning we're going to have updates on the coronavirus, and then we'll answer questions from you and your colleagues. On today's live town hall broadcast, former CMS official Matthew Albright reports on proposed legislation in response to the coronavirus pandemic. Healthcare attorney David Glazer reports on telehealth therapy services during the pandemic. Nicole Emanuel has a Monitor Monday Rack report. Alan Frick Samnick reports on news at the intersection of COVID-19 and the social determinants of health. Dr. Matt Lambert returns to the broadcast as part of our COVID-19 coverage. Healthcare attorney Andrew Walker is standing by to report our lead story, the impact of COVID-19 on the appeals process. And Dr. Ronald Hirsch is making his Monday rounds here on Monitor Monday. Monday Rounds is sponsored by R1RCM. Here now making his Monday Rounds is Dr. Ronald Hirsch. Well, good morning, all. Who would think that in the middle of a pandemic we would have to talk about status determinations? Well, we do. I have heard it said that if a patient is COVID positive, they can always be admitted as an inpatient. And that is absolutely not true. CMS may have waived the utilization of view conditions participation, but you still must follow the two midnight rule. Other payers are not requiring prior authorization, but they are actively denying inpatient status when they are contacted and are sure to audit after things get back to normal. So I wanna share with you the basics of the guidelines developed by Dr. Stephanie Van Zant from BayCare in Tampa, Florida. First, remember that many patients with symptomatic COVID can be sent home. And CMS is even allowing doctors to order home oxygen on any patient they want. With that, if a patient is COVID positive and medically requires hospital care, then it's likely inpatient. They usually can be expected to need monitoring for at least two days. Now, if their test is negative, but they have symptoms suggestive of COVID that require hospital care, it may be a false negative test and inpatient admission is appropriate. Now, if they're a nursing home patient who was tested and found to be COVID positive and sent to the hospital, but they have no symptoms and the SNF will not take them back, they place them observation to be closely monitored until a discharge plan is developed or they develop symptoms that do require hospital care. And finally, if they're a nursing home patient who was brought to the hospital because they had close contact with a COVID positive person at the facility and they're otherwise stable, they're placing them as outpatient in a bed until they can get enough negative tests to convince the SNF to take them back. Now, there are always nuances and what ifs, but I think Dr. Van Sant has it right. We still have to justify the need for hospital care. Now, what can be done about the lack of access to nursing home beds? Um, As you can see, hospitals are keeping patients for days without additional reimbursement and exposing patients to added risk. One option is to contact any critical access or rural hospital in your region and see if they would accept the patient into one of their swing beds. They provide excellent care in a safe environment. 
Now, it may be a bit of a drive, but gas is cheap, the roads are empty, and it's a safe destination. Hospitals can also contract with an area SNF to provide SNF care in the hospital, although this does not free up acute care beds. And CMS has asked, been asked to allow hospitals to bill for SNF care for those patients they cannot transfer anywhere. If you want to know more, see my Rack Monitor article from last week. Now, on one more front, CMS has just released guidelines for resuming elective care in hospitals. But let me offer a word of caution. One report from China found that stable, symptom-free patients who underwent elective surgery during the incubation period of COVID had a 20% risk of dying. So screening for symptoms is not enough. If you're involved in your facility's planning, be objective and don't let money or politics get in the way of doing the safe thing. Thanks, Chuck. Thank you, Dr. Hirsch. That was the Vice President of R1, RCM, Ronald Hirsch, MD. Dr. Hirsch was making his Monday rounds here on Monitor Monday. Here now with the Monitor Monday Rack Report is healthcare attorney Nicole Emanuel, and good morning, Nicole. Good morning. So this morning, I decided to comment on Trump's recent reliance on states' rights and how his recent stance may impact your state Medicaid. Have you ever wondered, seriously, what's the difference between Medicaid and Medicare apart from the fact that the different demographics serve and that one's federal and one state? Well, states' rights have not been a forefront issue since probably slavery. We have slowly become more federal over time. If you have been following the news lately, then you know that President Trump announced that he is going to have the workforce re-enter the real world, if you will. He's going to rely on the Constitution. Well, this means that governors will dictate when you are allowed to re-enter the workforce. Good or bad? No idea. But is he, Trump, really going to let the governors decide such a huge decision? Wouldn't he want to maintain as much control as possible? Well, in this case, he does not. So states' rights. What does this mean for you? In whatever state you're in, in whatever service you specialize in, there's way too many to discuss here, but I want to give one example that I believe is noteworthy and then explain how you can find your state's exact rules. One of our most necessary medical services compensated by Medicaid is a voluntary service, as in a state could legally decide whether to pull the service altogether. Because besides public outcry, legally your state could pull home health from the Medicaid program to save money if your particular state has budgetary problems. Yes, it's home health. Home health is a voluntary program. This is why home health providers feel like they have no say in how low the Medicaid reimbursement rates are. Because the state could say, well, we can't afford it, so we're going to pull home health. I mean, as we know, home health is very reliant on Medicaid. Home health reimbursed by Medicaid is covered in one form or another by all 50 states. Regardless of politics, Medicaid covers home health even though it's optional. So you want to read your state's rules on your home health while we're all quarantined? You'd start by reviewing your state's Medicaid state plan. I know that's a redundant name, but Google it. It's a public document. It can also be offered through an HCBS waiver if your state so chooses. These are your state's electives. 
I can't get into more detail on such a short broadcast, but do some research. You'll be surprised what you find. Back to you, Chuck. Thank you very much, Nicole. That was healthcare attorney Nicole Emanuel. Nicole is a partner in the Potomac Law Group. And coming up at about nine minutes after the hour in your time zone, you're going to hear from Matthew Albright, David Glazer, Alan Fink Sandwich, and healthcare attorney Andrew Walker, who's standing by to report our lead story. This is Monday, it's April the 20th, and you're listening to a special 60-minute edition of Monitor Monday, the COVID-19 Town Hall. Stand by. Correct coding of COVID-19 is one of the most serious challenges facing hospitals and physician practices in the United States. The rapid changes in federal regulations and technology to address the pandemic are nearly impossible to keep up with. And this unprecedented pandemic brings an equally unprecedented response in the ICD-10-CM code set. To ensure proper coding of COVID-19, Dr. Eric Reamer will explain the new coding guidelines, proper sequencing, and pathophysiology during an exclusive ICD-10 Monitor webcast on April 29th at 1.30 p.m. Eastern. Register now for this important and timely webcast and save $30 when you enter the coupon code TUESDAY at checkout. This webcast is part of a portfolio of educational webcasts produced by ICD-10 Monitor. And during this national public health emergency, accessible online education is more important than ever before. Visit the ICD-10 Monitor web store to learn how you can subscribe to the ICD-10 Monitor educational webcast series. Here now is healthcare attorney David Glazer with a report on telehealth therapy services. And David, good morning. Good morning, Chuck. So I'm going to be controversial this morning, I think, but hear me out. So I think there are times when it's prudent to disregard CMS guidance, and there are times when it's better to avoid asking permission for a particular activity. So last week, I offered my analysis of why you can bill for telehealth provided by physical, occupational, or speech-language pathologists as long as it's done incident to a physician in a clinic setting. The next day, during the CMS office hours, CMS employees stated that the current Medicare policy doesn't allow telehealth by therapists to be billed incident to. So what do you do? In your shoes, despite the comments on the calls, I would provide the therapy via telehealth and bill it. Why? I think the legal argument is solid. Can I give you an absolute guarantee it will prevail? Of course not. But I think the reasoning is sound, and during the call, CMS made it clear that they want to pay for telehealth physical therapy, and they're just figuring out a way to do it. This is a way. I've sent my analysis to CMS, and I'm befuddled by the fact that they haven't adopted it. But it's important to understand that even though CMS has done a truly amazing job at making modifications to policy to adapt for COVID, government officials, like everyone else, can make mistakes. If you believe CMS is wrong, it's appropriate to provide the service and bill. If the service gets denied, you'll get your day in court. Unless you're willing to take the risk of billing the service, there's really no way to get that day in court until you bill. We can talk more about this in the questions perhaps, but under the Illinois Council Supreme Court case, Courts have been hesitant to permit healthcare organizations to seek declaratory judgments to obtain coverage. They say that you have to exhaust your administrative remedies first, which means you have to bill and get denied. Now, you might be able to convince a court to hear your request for declaratory judgment, but we're talking about what's definitely an uphill battle. 
Now, if you're trying to solve a problem during this COVID crisis, one question is whether you ask permission from a regulator or whether you act off your own risk assessment. I recently had a client ask me whether they needed to list a physician's home address on a claim if the physician had provided telehealth from his or her home. I replied that even before the quarantine, if the physician was using his or her home infrequently, guidance from CMS justified a decision to bill with the clinic address. Moreover, I don't like the idea of using the home address. In addition to it being an administrative hassle, that approach exposes the physician to angry patients. Why advertise their home address? The clinic liked that answer, but still opted to ask the regional office whether they agreed. The regional office did not. The regional office said, CMS guidance confirms that it's not necessary to enroll a physician office, but then claimed, without citation, that if the physician provides the service from home, the home address still has to appear on the claim form. Now, I'm not sure that CMS in Baltimore would agree with the regional office, um, though I guess I guess can't know that because I haven't asked them. I do know this. I'm not going to be asking, and I don't understand why my client went to the regional office. Having the wrong address on a claim doesn't create an overpayment. Whether the service was provided in the clinic or at home doesn't seem material, so the risk of facing any False Claims Act liability is de minimis. In a situation like that, I think they should have relied on my answer and billed using the clinic address. There's really no upside to seeking permission. If you screw this one up, there's no material penalty. Keep your physicians safe. Chuck, there are times to follow the advice of Billy Joel. Don't wait for answers. Just take your chances. But you can ask me why. Don't wait for answers. You took your chances. Don't ask me why. Chuck, back to you. Don't ask me why. Thanks, David, very much. That was healthcare attorney David Glazer. David is a shareholder of the law firm of Fredrickson & Byron in downtown Minneapolis. Up next, Matthew Albright with our legislative update. The Monitor Monday legislative update with Matthew Albright is sponsored by Zealous. Zealous is a market-leading provider of claims cost and payment optimization solutions to price, pay, and explain healthcare claims. Here now is Matthew Albright. Chuck, let's go with a good news, bad news approach to what's going on in D.C. We'll start with the bad news. First, on Wednesday of last week, CMS published its interim final rule on the Paycheck Protection Program. As you remember, this was the part of the CARES Act, that last stimulus package, that provided forgivable loans for pretty much any small business to be put towards paying employee salaries, continuing their employee benefits, paying the rent and utility bills to keep the business afloat. That was on Wednesday. On Thursday, that same program ran out of its $350 billion and was no longer accepting applications. Now, Congress knew this was coming, but they basically spent the last two weeks arguing whether they should just put more funds into the Paycheck Protection Program or expand the stimulus to help certain areas that might have gotten left out of the previous stimulus packages. By Friday, the powers that be were unable to come to an agreement, and so the Paycheck Protection Program remained shuttered. The other bad news was that while CMS sent out its first set of payments last week, 
$30 billion for healthcare facilities in particular that are battling the coronavirus directly. Those funds were sent out according to Medicare reimbursement, not according to which facilities were struggling the most with COVID-19 patients. So hospitals in states that have had very few COVID-19 patients got the same amount of funding as a hospital in New York that was straining to keep up. Now, that was the bad news. Let's talk good news. The administration and the House Democrats look like they have come to an agreement this past weekend on the next stimulus package, which at this point is estimated to be worth about $450 billion. And it will include more than just funding for the Paycheck Protection Program. It will also include another $75 billion for healthcare facilities to help make up their losses in battling COVID-19, probably through that same CMS program that sent out the $30 billion last week. It also looks like this next package will have money set aside specifically for COVID-19 testing. Action on that package could start as early as this Wednesday in the Senate. Again, as long as this next stimulus package just refunds existing programs, Congress could vote on it by unanimous consent. That is, they could vote remotely. They wouldn't have to come into town to vote on it. But if just one lawmaker in either chamber votes against the package, the vote would fail and Congress would have to wait to pass it when they're expected to come back to town on May 4th. At the same time, that fund for hospital facilities is getting ready for its second round of payments. And this time, says CMS Administrator Seema Verma, it will go to facilities that are most impacted by COVID-19 patients. Um, more good news last night, as Ron mentioned earlier, CMS released its guidelines for resuming elective procedures in states where the COVID-19 impact has been low or stabilized. These guidelines are meant as suggestions. And as Nicole has said, it's up to the states and the governors how and when they want to resume elective procedures. To that end, Alaska, Texas, and Oklahoma have all already announced specific dates, all within the next two weeks, when elective procedures will be allowed in those states, at least to a, a limited degree. Chuck, there's really been a shift in tone, I think, this week in both state and federal announcements and executive orders. Throughout March and the beginning of April, we saw states shutting things down, tightening social distancing, and the feds echoed those actions. This past week, there's activity and at least planning to loosen those restrictions and focus on testing with an aim to bringing back elective healthcare procedures. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Matthew, very much. That was former CMS official Matthew Albright. Matthew is the Chief Legislative Affairs Officer for Zealous. Here now with the very latest news on the social determinants of health is Alan Fink-Samdick. Alan also has a Monitor Monday listener survey. And good morning, Alan. Good morning, Chuck, and a very good Monday, all. Daily COVID-19 data is very tough to view, with everyone keeping a close eye on the number of persons tested, positive tests, hospitalizations, as well as deaths across the globe. Much recent attention is on the impact of the virus to individual communities and the populations with the largest minority populations, especially persons of color. As mentioned in my recent RAC Monitor article, COVID-19 has further widened the gap between the have and have-nots, leaving a formidable chasm. 
Data on health disparities and the social determinants has been fast and furious. Top report nods for this unique information go to the Centers for Disease Control, the Kaiser Family Foundation, and the new COVID racial data tracker, which follows data for 29 states, a collaboration between the Atlantic's COVID tracking project and American University's Anti-Racist Research and Policy Center. Key results include Majority black counties had infection rates three times the rates of majority white counties. In Chicago, blacks are 29% of the population and roughly 70% of COVID-19 fatalities. In Washington, D.C., blacks are 46% of the population and 62.5% of fatalities. In Michigan, Detroit accounts for nearly 85% of the state's virus-related deaths. For 1,500 hospitalizations across 14 states, persons of color comprise 30% of hospitalizations, accounting for only 18% of the population in those areas. And in New York State, African Americans comprise 9% of the state population, yet 17% of the deaths, with Latinos at 34% of known virus-related deaths, more than their 29.1% share of the city's population. Persons concerned about immigration status and deportation are often reluctant to be tested, contributing to high virus transmission rates across communities. And of course, unemployment is up 1,000% across the country, further decreasing access to health insurance, increasing homelessness, and further limiting testing options. Now, the result is that communities are stepping up more than ever to take care of their own. Efforts to increase testing are expanding. Makeshift labs using rapid COVID-19 tests, many with telemedicine access, are appearing in California, Texas, the Midwest, Mid-Atlantic, Florida, and Georgia. Mobile test units to coordinate coronavirus testing were developed for underserved populations in North Carolina, where tests are offered to patients regardless of ability to pay or insurance. The program also vows not to share immigration status or report patients who are undocumented. Expanding testing options is vital, especially in areas with the highest transmission rates. This week's Monitor Monday survey asks, do the patients served in your community have access to COVID-19 rapid testing, whether through your facility or other local sites? Yes, no, or unsure? Well, we'll wait to find out. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Ellen, very much. That was consultant and author Ellen McSandmick. And as Ellen said, we're going to have the results of the Monitor Monday listener survey later in this broadcast. You're listening to a special edition of Monitor Monday. And coming up next, the COVID-19 impact on Medicare appeals. That's our lead story. And standing by with the details is healthcare attorney Andrew Walker. This is Monitor Monday, a broadcast service of Rack Monitor. Stand by. With nationally recognized consultants and state-of-the-art technology, Panacea Healthcare provides auditing services for inpatient, outpatient, physician, pharmacy, revenue integrity, and documentation. Panacea provides auditing services for specialties including interventional radiology, E&M coding, surgery, and more to help you meet your auditing and compliance goals. From finding lost revenue to capturing all charges and ensuring compliance and data integrity, you'll be confident that Panacea is focusing on the important risks and opportunities. Here's more good news for your organization. Panacea can electronically audit 100% of your claims or encounters within minutes, 
revealing those claims with the highest probability for a coding, compliance, data integrity, revenue risk, or opportunity. And for a nominal fee, Panacea will process your claims and provide a diagnostic review. That's the Panacea difference. To learn more, call 866-926-5933. That number again, 866-926-5933. Our lead story this morning is about the impact of COVID-19 on the Medicare appeals process. Here now with the details is healthcare attorney Andrew Walker. Good morning, Drew. Good morning, Chuck. As a result of the public health emergency, um, the secretary has issued uh, 1135 uh, waivers, a number of them, and one of them deals with uh, Medicare appeals. Uh, It applies to Medicare appeals involving fee-for-service, Medicare Advantage, and Part D audits. Most of the changes uh, address what happens at the earlier levels by CMS as uh, OMHA is uh, independent from CMS. But first of all, um, we should not expect a significant amount, if any, request for records during this public health uh, emergency. We should, uh, we will see providing of extensions to file an appeal, waiving timeliness, requirements for requests for additional information to adjudicate the appeal, processing the appeal even with incomplete appointment of representative forms, and uh, processing requests for appeals that do not meet the required elements, but using information that is available, and finally utilizing all potential flexibilities in the appeals process if good cause is satisfied. Now from the OMHA, Front. OMHA plans to continue hearings and appeals through a telework, so uh, appellants should plan on continuing their appeals as scheduled unless they specifically hear from OMHA otherwise. And um, uh, frankly, this is how we always conducted our appeals, usually um, by telephone, so that's not really a significant change. Uh, also, we are getting hearings scheduled. So uh, from that perspective, if you already have uh, an ALJ hearing request, you you may still have it scheduled. ALJs are providing greater flexibility to request adjournments and rescheduling of hearings and extension of time, uh, even to request a hearing. So um, while the appeals process remains uh, in place, we should expect to see significantly less uh, audits of MA organizations, Part D sponsors, uh, and Medicare, Medicaid plans, and PACE organizations. They are focusing uh, their investigations on issues of noncompliance with health and safety beneficiaries are at serious risk and complaints about uh, infection uh, control. That being said, let me um, uh, address something specifically. The TPE program which you may be aware of, there's 13,500 audits. And this is the three strikes and you're out, they look at 20 to 40 claims and you have to improve, um, is being suspended at that time and those in process are being suspended. Uh, Interestingly, I have a client whose front office got a TPE letter, never passed it on to the doctor, went through uh, three levels of TPE without the doctor knowing, uh, submitting inadequate records, and the doctor was revoked for 10 years, which we're fighting that revocation. So if you do get a notice, don't uh, uh, ignore it. 
uh, by any means. Um, also, HHS will not be conducting audits to track whether there was a prior patient relationship, physician relationship for claims submitted during the public health emergency for uh, telehealth, and uh, they have uh, uh, they have relaxed some uh, HIPAA requirements. So, all in all, we should expect less audits, uh, but those that are in place. Uh, and you picks are still auditing. Uh, we need to defend. Thank you, Chuck. Thank you very much. That was healthcare attorney Andrew Walker. Mr. Walker is the managing partner at Walker and Associates. Now is the time for the results of the day's Monitor Monday listener survey. And once again, here's Alan Fink Samnick. Do the patients served in your community have access to COVID-19 rapid testing, whether through your facility or other local sites? Lots of interest from today's listeners on this topic. More than 50% said yes. 16, close to 17%, it's changing as I'm reporting it, said no, but actually close to 33% of listeners were unsure. And I know we have some further questions about this topic that we will address in our upcoming town hall. Now's the time for our question and answer period. We're going to open it up for our town hall portion of this broadcast and standing by to answer your questions. Dr. Ronald Hurst, David Glazer, Matthew Albright, Nicole Emanuel, Andrew Walker, Alan Vink-Samnick, and Dr. Matt Lambert. And Dr. Matt Lambert, let me start with you. You know, I'm thinking beyond the management of this pandemic, what do you think are going to be the long-term impacts on the accountable care organizations and Medicare Advantage plans? There was a recent survey by the National Association of ACOs that uh, questioned uh, uh, ongoing participation based upon uh, the, the fallout from the, from the COVID pandemic. And more than 55% of those currently enrolled in a uh, ACO plan said that they doubt that they will continue to enroll in that in the future, uh, which is which is uh, quite a setback because uh, CMS has done a really good job of, of streamlining the uh, MSFP pathways program over the last couple of years. The flip side of that is the Medicare Advantage plans. The recent decision by CMS to allow uh, telehealth visits to be um, risk adjustable uh, really fits with that Medicare Advantage plan, and I would expect the Medicare Advantage space to grow even more based upon that. And we're seeing that a lot with our with our current clients at at Curation Health. And I, and always, anytime I say the word telehealth, I always want to clarify that a little bit further. Um, many of them are pivoting in the short term to telephonic visits uh, to uh, just to check in for their patients and screen for COVID. Uh, but going forward, that face-to-face uh, requirement for risk-adjusted coding uh, will be done via a, um, a video chat conference. So, uh, and, and in the short term, they're doing that over Skype or, uh, or Google's Hangout Meet. In the long term, I think we'll probably see a more HIPAA-compliant platform associated with that. Thank you, Chuck. Thank you, Dr. Lambert. And, Ellen, a question for you. This goes back to your survey and your story this morning. You know, experts have expressed how the lack of COVID-19 testing in communities of color speaks to racism and health inequities for those who are impacted by the social determinants. What are your thoughts on this matter? Chuck, this is an ever-evolving topic. Um, Barriers to and the challenges with access to care and the resources were rampant in these communities pre-COVID. So these populations um, are only having more challenges. They had decreased access to health care, poorer health literacy and language literacy, difficulties affording medications, trusting of the health care system. I could go 
on and on and on. So they're going to be more immune to any public health challenge, and COVID-19 is certainly one of them. Folks who work day jobs that are at minimum wage, uh, seasonal positions like uh, sports stadiums, for example, day laborers, they're less able to take time off for testing. If they have mild symptoms or illness, they're less likely to respond to that. And um, ultimately, this will have the potential to raise transmission rates. So the haves continue to have less, if not also having a tougher time accessing what they need. Thanks, Alan, very much. Kind of a sad response and characterization of where healthcare is today. David, let's take a look at some of the other questions that are coming in. So we've got a ton. I'm going to start, uh, Matthew Albright, with a couple for you. So um, do we know how uninsured coverage for COVID-19 patients is going to be paid? Will it be paid through claim submissions to Medicare or Medicaid or through Medicare or Medicaid cost report settlements? And I think we'll just continue with this one. Is If it's through a claim process, is it going to be through the diagnostic code on the claim, cost report settlement? What do we know? Good question. And uh, as probably is going to happen with lots of these questions, the answer is uh, we don't know. So the administration announced about a week and a half ago that the uninsured would be uh, paid for through what's called the Public Health and Social Services Emergency Fund. And that's the $100 billion that went out, uh, that's going out to facilities that are treating COVID-19 patients directly, right? That's from the CARES Act that we talked about today. So that's $100 billion, $30 billion of it went out last week. We're expecting another $75 billion to put into that program. Um, there's a lot of pushback, of course, from hospitals on using that program uh, to pay for the uninsured. Uh, the estimate on that is probably $43 billion, which is like half of uh, the, the – almost more than half of the remaining uh, amount that's in that fund uh, to pay for uninsured um, patients. So that's all to say that the announcement was that it's coming out of that fund. Uh, I think with the pushback, um, the administration hasn't come out and clarified how that's going to happen in writing or put in anything in, in, in regulations or in any kind of guidelines. So I think we still have to wait on the final answer to that and, and frankly hope that it doesn't come out of that uh, public health and social services emergency fund. I think there's going to be a lot of waiting and a lot of change. I mean, I think answers could change. Uh, while I've got you, I'll ask one more specific question here, which is on pediatric hospitals. So this question is uh, from uh, Anne. Are any of the financial programs specifically targeted at pediatric hospitals? Not as of yet. Again, that public health and social services emergency fund, that only applies to facilities that are dealing with COVID-19 patients directly. Uh, the other uh, related uh, program that might apply is the small business, uh, the paycheck protection uh, program. That's if you have less than 500 employees. Again, that's for all businesses, but if you're a healthcare business, a healthcare facility, and you've got less than 500 employees, then you're, you're, you're uh, eligible for that. Uh, right now, they're not taking applications, but hopefully by midweek, they'll have more money in there. Um, the other thing to look out for is, is this next stimulus package, again, that we're expected to see movement on this week, and see, they say that they're putting out more uh, money for facilities, 
uh, healthcare facilities. So we'll see if there's any uh, broadening of the eligibility that they've had um, in previous uh, stimulus packages. Um, so uh, the answer is no, unless you have less than 500 employees, but look this week to see if there's any uh, increase in the eligibility with some of the stimulus packages, the, new, the newest stimulus package coming out hopefully in the next week. Thank you so much, Matt. Dr. Hirsch, question for you. There's been a ton of stuff about questions about the CS modifier, and I have to admit, it takes me back to my days at Kentucky Fried Chicken in high school, and I think of Cole's Law, but that isn't it. So the CS modifier, A, a doctor orders a COVID test. There's no test available, so the patient doesn't get it. Doctor strongly suspects patient has COVID, no test. Can, is the CS modifier available in that instance? And then B, can you just talk about kind of what other CS modifier developments have happened? Sure. It's always worthwhile going back to the law and the Families First Act is what talks about the 100% coverage. So I think it really says that if the test is ordered or administered, that you can apply the CS modifier. So if the doctor actually orders it and sends the order off to the hospital or clinic or drive through site, um, the CS modifier should be applied. I'll add, though, that the CS modifier is not really carte blanche to get Medicare to pay 100% for everything. So the question comes up is if a doctor orders the test and it's positive and the patient manages at home, and a week later they get, they get worse or a few days later and they end up in the hospital and get admitted, if another test wasn't done, the CS modifier doesn't go on anything in that hospital stay. So it's really only specific for the visit where the test is either ordered or administered both the facility fee and the physician fee for that visit. Thanks so much, Ron. Nicole, a question for you. Has the RAC eliminated additional record requests during this uh, COVID crisis? Good question. And I think the answer is we don't know. Uh, CMS does issue these general rules that says something to the effect of, you know, most RACs are on pause unless they're essential. And then that word essential comes back into play onto what is essential and not. Uh, sometimes the exceptions outweigh the general rule, so the general rule becomes almost obsolete. I could go on and on with all the variants state by state, but I think the best thing is to do is to ask your personal auditor. Uh, regardless the answer your auditor gives you, ask again, say, is it because of the coronavirus? You may get a different and more truthful answer. Drew, got a couple of questions for you. The first one from Sandra is one uh, that I think is a really particularly good one. Hey, I didn't understand your comment related to time frames for appeals. Are those being extended? Great question, and thanks for asking, because I'd like to clarify that. They talk about flexibility, but if there's anything that I most strictly comply with, it's appeals deadlines, and they have traditionally been very strict about finding good cause for late appeals. So there is some language, but I would not miss a deadline unless, you know, I'm, I'm a hospital that is using, utilizing all my resources for COVID-19 and I would uh, utilize uh, that uh, as a rationale, but otherwise I would still uh, treat them very strictly. You know, it's interesting, Drew, because they basically said, contractors can waive them, but they didn't require it. And so we're in total discretion land, which so I think the reason you're confused, Sandra, is we all are. Uh, Drew, while I got you, got another one for you. So do you, this is the classic forecasting question from Kevin. With all the changes regarding telehealth and the like, 
Do you think that there's going to be a wave of post-payment audits in the future? I think there may be. And um, uh, somebody had said to me, and I can't say it's an authoritative source, that 94% of the telehealth services are not complying with even the uh, new requirements. Uh, That being said, I think uh, I have found that in almost all advocacy that we do on behalf of providers and suppliers, when we're seeking some type of leniency, COVID-19 plays a significant role and and the circumstances caused by it. So although I I think there may well be, um, I I also think there may be some uh, defenses based upon lack of uh, clarity and uh, COVID-19. Dr. Lambert, a question for you. What are you seeing as trends in your ED? Are you still seeing MIs? What's going on with non-COVID stuff in your ED? It was interesting when this, uh, as we first got into the pandemic, it seemed like uh, that we were seeing a decrease uh, in other acute illnesses. So think strokes and think MIs. That has proven not to be the case. And we've seen those, the numbers of critical um, uh, patients, we've seen that normalize. Uh, certainly seen a um, uh, an increase in behavioral health visits. So for uh, just the collective anxiety and all the unknowns in our world today is uh, is has affected some of our uh, behavioral health patients to where they are se- seeking acute care. And uh, and, and then finally the uh, and the significant decrease um, uh, in uh, in lower acuity um, uh, visits to, to the emergency departments. At least speaking in the uh, in the mid Atlantic region. Thank you so much. Ron, question for you. Should ruling out COVID-19 be added to the exceptions for uh, so that you can have a one-day stay under the two-midnight rule? Um, no. I, I think, again, it, it just ruling out a disease does not necessarily require hospital care. So it, it depends on the degree of hypoxia, the tachycardia, mental status changes, other laboratory findings that are going to determine whether the patient requires hospital care or not. Um, I can see the motivation that you know, again, for an, an inpatient DRG gets a 20% added payment. Um, there's no provision to increase the observation payment, um, but I, I just don't think it's appropriate at this point. I don't won't disagree with you, but I will add, don't forget that on the two midnight rule, the test is always expectation. And so a lot of it comes down to what you think is going to be happening as we get into this. And so that ultimately will control here. I've got a question on 17. I'm going to read it. It's a billing question. So for the 99441 to 443, which is the new telephone codes, since they're not telehealth, would it require a modifier two on the claim? And I'm stumped by this one a little. I wonder if actually if, if modifier two, I wonder if that's place of service two for telehealth is what, I, I don't know. So I don't know the answer to that one. David, this is Ron. I think the question was place of service O2. And uh, Medicare did specify that for the 441 to 443, you use place of service office as if the physician was in the office making the phone call. And I think that's a super important point. You generally, you're treating these as if the person came in. It's it's counterintuitive that a telehealth visit is place of service 11, but that's what they want you to do. Nicole, I got a question for you. If a provider has a RAC result letter that's been pending a response, are we required to appeal? Will they recoup the overpayment if we don't proceed? And after Nicole goes, maybe Drew, you could chime in if too. My answer is kind of another question. Why not just abide by the rule to be safe? I think the real answer is that you could easily argue that not appealing timely is because of the virus, 
But unless there's a reason that you're inhibited from complying, for example, if the burden of copying right now is just way too much for you know the amount of staff you have right now because of the virus or because you're over overpopulated, then you have a good reason. But ask permission. Let's go back to David's rule. Be a good person. Thanks. I always like when people go back to the be a good person test. Adrian, do you want to add anything to that? Uh, yeah, we are still getting um, demand letters uh, from UPICS, and uh, I would absolutely comply with the timeframes. I would expect them to withhold. Uh, you can stop a withhold by filing uh, a redetermination in 30 days, reconsideration in 60 days. Uh, and after that, I would seek some relief on the normal uh, withhold patterns. But uh, again, I, I would not miss a time frame. Dr. Hirsch, question for you. If a nursing home closes and sends its dementia patients to a hospital, does the hospital bill observation or do they issue an ABN? Obviously, we've got to try and send their patients to family members, but this is tricky in the current times. Oh, I think it would be tough to give an ABN, again, shifting liability to the patient or the family, because it really wasn't their fault that this happened. So I think that would be um, a public relations nightmare. Um, I think the best thing to do is, is if you have to hospitalize them, hospitalize them as outpatient. Um, they they, if they don't need observation services, you're still going to provide it. But since it's not medically necessary, you would bill it as a non-medically necessary service. Um, and I think this is one of these things where you keep track of these very carefully. And as all the, the bills come out and there's money to fund these things, there may be a way to seek reimbursement from the federal government for this care. Dr. Lambert, a question about your comment on Medicare Advantage plan audit reduction. Was there any specific guidance you were referring to? Is there anything about a reduction or a pause specifically for MA plans? Yeah, no, I think, I think just more of a clarification. Uh, I think we'll see a reduction in health systems enrolling in ACOs and, uh, and MSSP plans. Uh, I think we will see an increase in um, uh, Medicare Advantage plans shifting to video conferencing for their visits now that those are risk adjustable. Uh, I don't think we will see a reduction in audits. As a matter of fact, we might see an increase in audits uh, once the dust settles on the current pandemic. So I think that was more of a just clarifying uh, statement um, because I don't think we're going to see a reduction in audits for, for MA video conferencing. We'll probably see a, an increase. So, Ron, this one's for you. Is the CS modifier only for clinic? Can you use it in other hospital, lab, other things, or is it clinic only? Absolutely. Any setting where there's a provider seeing a patient and ordering the test. So, again, the doctor in the office orders the test, sends the patient to the hospital. That supplies the ED doctor, orders the test. Um, seeing the patient in the ED, the CS modifier applies. The facility, ED facility P, gets the CS modifier. So, really, it can be any of those settings can apply. Drew, this was a question I'll ask you. Beth is confused about the RAC discussion. She then sends a Q&A that says, is CMS suspending Medicare fee-for-service medical review during the public health emergency? And the answer is yes, CMS has suspended most Medicare fee-for-service medical review during the emergency pandemic. Do you want to just comment on that? Yes, I think where they've indicated they're going to continue is uh, where they may see uh, aspects of uh, fraud, which uh, falls in the UPIC uh, category. So um, uh, again, I expect it to be uh, greatly uh, reduced. I, I would expect the racks to fall in that 
category. Um, if I received a review, I'd do two things. I'd respond to it. I'd also try to get it stopped uh, based upon uh, the waiver and CMS's position about uh, holding off reviews at this time. And I think, Beth, one of the big things there is the word most. And I think that CMS is worried about, they don't want to give a blanket exception to fraud, right? They're, they're super worried about people using the emergency to, to do nefarious things. So I think they want to cut down, but not completely prevent these, which means we're in a state of uncertainty, right? And there's always the possibility someone might it, it, yes, to audit you and you don't have that blessing. Yeah, that's correct. Ahead, we had a medical review findings uh, last week. So the UPIC is still continuing their work. And I don't think you can say to the UPIC, sorry, you can't audit us because of the COVID emergency. It would be nice to, but I don't know. Uh, I don't think you can do that. Do you agree, Drew? Uh, that I agree with. I, I would try to take that position with Iraq and still respond. But I really don't think um, uh, you can take that position uh, with a UPIC. You could try. I'm not sure they'll get you very far. And Nicole, you do this a lot. I just want to give you a shot to chime in. I don't even need to. Uh, Drew and David, y'all explained that absolutely better than I could have. That is the exact answer I would have given. Ron, I think this is a good one for you. What's the difference between the CS modifier and the DR condition code? Do you include them both? The CS modifier is a line item code or modifier to go on that those particular services. The DR condition code applies to the whole claim where a specific waiver was used. So the example would be a, a skilled nursing facility admits a patient without a three-day stay, they're going to apply the DR condition code. Uh, Medicare said if a hospital provides inpatient hospital care in a gymnasium, they should apply the DR condition code. Um, so that's really just an identifier that some Medicare payment regulation um, should be waived so that that claim can be paid. Thank you so much, Dr. Hurst. Dr. Lambert, this one's right up your alley. Sarah is curious to hear more about COVID-19's impact on the value and risk-based programs out of CMM. Yeah, um, so the, the, just a sign of the times, the, 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 the ICD-10 code for, uh, for COVID uh, is a U code that came into effect April 1st. So just to give you an idea of how, of how fast we're evolving here, there wasn't even a code for respiratory uh, COVID-19 um, uh, three weeks ago. And it certainly isn't fit into the risk model currently. Um, the and one of the things when we're working with all of our our, our clients in the uh, Medicare Advantage and in the risk and the value-based care space is they're they're very good at addressing chronic conditions, uh, which is which is what the risk model is based upon. And a lot of those risk models apply directly to patients who are going to have adverse outcomes from uh, from COVID-19. So many of them are already. Uh, managing those quite effectively. The other piece for patients who have bumpy inpatient stays, uh, they're, they're, since there's no direct risk uh, or, or, or value based uh, to, to the diagnosis itself, then they have to track certain things like respiratory failure, renal failure, uh, oxygen uh, support, a lot of things that, are, that also contribute to the risk model that imply a patient who's had a, a, a tough course with COVID-19. So, uh, there's going to be a lot of movement here, but that's the current view on how we think COVID-19 affects the, uh, the risk model. So I've got a question, Ron, and I think, Nicole, you might want to chime in on this one. So the question is, if a doctor, if we do have a COVID-19 
test that's negative, but the patient is symptomatic and has has COVID clinically. Um, right now, if a physician documents possible COVID or probable COVID, it would not code to use 07.1. Now, the implications of that are that the hospital would not get that 20% DRG extra payment. Um, there is a code U 07.2, but it's not be, it's not accepted in the U.S. as a um, code for the ICD-10 CM, so you can't use it. So I think if a doctor says probable or possible, you should really ask, query them: Did they have COVID or not? You know, make it make up your mind. If you think it's COVID, document COVID, even because these tests are not perfect. There there are lots of false negatives. So again, I, I learned everything I know about that from Dr. Reamer, and I absolutely have people um, read her articles and believe her because she knows what she's talking about. And I think that's a super important point, Ron. So while we've got you, what do you think about the CS modifier for a patient who comes to the ED and they're admitted to observation? They're there for eight hours of observation, and then the ED level is going to wind up packaged into the observation. We've got a bundling thing. Would you put the CS on both the ED level and the observation? No, the, the CS would go on the ED um, physician's claim. It would go on the facility billing, that line item for the ED visit. And I honestly don't know what, what the processing claims processing system would do with it, whether it would pay the observation APC at 100% or not. Um, great question, and um, it's just going to take trial. someone putting in a claim to see what happens. So this will be the last one I think we have time for, and it's actually a couple of questions about audits. And so it's, I guess I'll sum it up with, hey, just to clarify, automated denials aren't affected by the suspension. You know, what about TPE? And I think the way to summarize it is there are no guarantees right now. You kind of have to wait and see what audit you get or don't get. There is nothing you can point to that says, hey, you cannot audit me. I think we're going to see a dramatic decrease, but there is no law that says thou shall not be audited. And so I think go back to what Drew and Nicole have said. If you get one appeal, you can ask for a waiver. You can ask them to not do it, but you cannot assume that you've got a pass. So, Chuck, I will turn it back to you. Thanks, David, very much. And I'm going to turn it back to you because I want to close this portion of our Q&A town hall broadcast by asking you to repeat, if you would, that admonition about doing the right thing. I'll go to a question I had right before I got on this morning. And so a client is struggling with the idea, can we have patients not sign the various things we ask them to sign as part of a hospital stay? CMS has given waivers on some of the signatures, but they haven't given waivers on others. What should we do? And they were talking with people and there were a bunch of people who said, hey, there's a rule that says you need a signature. You can't do this without a signature. And my answer and their answer were the same. Sometimes you got to use common sense. And if the risk of having someone sign a form is that you might spread COVID either to the patient or to your workforce, the signature just isn't that important, right? And ultimately, you're going to get in front of a decision maker who recognizes that. And so it's worth it to do a balancing test. There are some rules you don't break, but there's often a balancing test. Breaking the rule or following the rule might have other risks. And if having someone sign a piece of paper might expose someone to a deadly disease, don't have them sign the piece of paper. Thank you very much, David. And that's going to be a wrap for this live special edition of Monitor Monday, the COVID-19 Town Hall. And we thank you so very much for being with us today. And special thanks to our outstanding panelists, Matthew Albright, Nicole Emanuel, Alan Fink, Sam McDavid, Glazer, whom you just heard, 
Dr. Ronald Hirsch, Andrew Walkler, and Dr. Matt Lampert. And we thank you again for being with us until next Monday. I'm Chuck Buck, reporting for Monitor Monday in Iraq Monitor. Shelter in place, everybody. Monitor Monday is a presentation of Rack Monitor.